Hello there, and welcome to episode 2 of Room for Improvement. In today's episode, we'll be recapping the first international break of the year, the January transfer window, and previewing the big fixture this weekend in La Liga, as Atletico Madrid visits the Camp Nou to take on Barcelona. Don't forget to head on over to wherever you get your podcasts, and hit that subscribe button, rate, review, and share with your friends or with anyone who may have an interest in our beautiful game. Thank you for your support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So the first international break of 2022 was the start of what I like to call the business end of the season. Every match matters from here on out. Whether you're trying to win your domestic league, win the Champions League, avoid relegation, or trying to get promoted, every match is life or death. So I ever told you that it's not about whether you win or lose, it's about how you play the game. They were obviously fucking lying. In fact, people who say that are the ones who care about winning the most. So why did they tell you this? To kill your motivation. And so they can finally experience the feeling of winning. Food for thought from yours truly, Daryl, from Room for Improvement. Anyway, South American qualifiers were a prime example of just how intense the business end of the season can get. The match against Colombia was one of the most stressful experiences of my life, simply because of how Peru played. They gave possession of the ball to Colombia Colombia had as much as 69% of the ball. Sure as hell felt that way. I was so restless. At one point, I was ready to take the draw. We were playing like fucking shit. So I was was ready to accept that draw. I felt like the draw was going to feel like a win to me. But thank the Lord, the strategy proved effective. That goal in the 85th minute, thanks to Edison Flores, who was played on by a brilliant through ball from Christian Cueva, our one good chance of the whole game. But yeah, we limited Colombia to two shots on goal all game. We did not give them the transitions or the space to counterattack, which is probably what they felt Peru was going to do. It's what they were expecting. It's what they're more comfortable doing. Flores scored, and boy, did we celebrate that goal. It was pure relief. Because at that point, a Colombia goal was looking, looking way more likely than a Peru one. Special shout out to Aldo Corso, who I never really rated highly for the national team. But that day, he did a brilliant job marking the new Liverpool signing, Luis Diaz. He was fundamental to that victory. Speaking of Diaz, what a leap he's made in the past year. He led up the 2021 Copa America. He was a joint top scorer with Leo Messi, who, as we know, went on to win the tournament and get his first major honor with the Argentina national team. Yeah, I just had to sneak that Messi propaganda in there. Deal with it. He's now, well, yeah, he's now the main man at Colombia. Luis Diaz took that role from declining James Rodriguez. So it'll be very interesting to see how he evolves as a player in his time in England. So yeah, then we got put through even more suffering with the draw at home to Ecuador. It was a very frustrating affair that started off in the worst way possible for Peru. We conceded very foolishly in the first minute of play. Over the top through ball, caught Alexander Collins sleeping. It was very, very frustrating to see that. Santiago Ormeña was given a chance as striker in place of the injured Gianluca Lapadula. But he made nothing of it. He was rightly hooked at halftime. He tried to use his physical attributes. We tried to use his, phys- his physical attributes in a similar manner to how we used to utilize Paolo Guerrero. Playing long balls to him. 
using his height and strength to win the, the, the duels, but it failed spectacularly. We were missing Lapadula and Cueva. Sorely, man. Edison Flores came on and he made the difference again. He scored another crucial goal for Peru to end this round in the fifth place spot, which is the playoff spot. Ecuador is now one point away from securing, at the very least, a playoff spot and a victory from securing direct qualification. I don't want to jump the gun and congratulate Ecuador, but credit where it's due. Well deserved for a great, a resilient, very organized Ecuador side that made life difficult for us that night. So yeah, all the other results across the board proved very crucial to us, especially Argentina's two victories against Chile and Colombia. Special shout out to them. A great help. However, among those results was another very disappointing surprise as uh, Chile defeated Bolivia in La Paz. And now they're still alive in the race. Bolivia is known for making life hell for everyone who visits La Paz. You know, all the altitude, the freezing temperatures. But just when they need to make good use of that home field advantage and win, they don't. They're now pretty much out of the race too. And yeah, it just made, it just made life more complicated for us. So yeah, the last two match days came to a close with four teams in the hunt for the last two qualification spots. Those are Uruguay, Peru, Colombia, and Chile. So yeah, the final two match days, which will take place the last week of March, they will be with simultaneous kickoffs. And yeah, that, that, that of course is done to avoid any type of match fixing or whatever the fuck. But yeah, Ecuador will make it through, as I mentioned before. They just need a point from their next two games to guarantee a playoff spot, or they need three points, a victory, to qualify directly. Peru remains in control of their destiny if Brazil lends us a hand and defeats Chile. Their next two games are against Uruguay in Montevideo, and the last game will be against Paraguay at home at the Estadio Nacional. Hopefully, that match will end in celebration of another World Cup qualification. And there's no reason to think that Brazil will not beat them because they have never lost at home in the qualifiers throughout its history. And I expect Colombia to get 23 points in total. They will get all six points from their next two games. It's against uh, against Bolivia and against Venezuela, I believe. So those are two relatively easy fixtures for Colombia who have not won or scored in seven games. But I expect that to end with the next two matches. So yeah, those next those next two match days are looking very, very dramatic. It's probably going to come down to the wire. So yeah, on to the United States men's national team who looked like a fucking mess in this last international break despite getting a, a 3-0 comprehensive victory against Honduras. I think a more accurate representation of where this team is at was in that loss against Canada. A very shambolic display by the American team. It's a complete tactical chaos. As is the usual with Greg Berhalter's United States team. Fucking mess. Just complete anarchy. Players just conjuring up whatever they can with their individual abilities. As a team, this United States team is definitely less than the sum of its parts. But as if that wasn't shambolic enough, those quotes from this coach after the match... It's totally nonsensical. Talk about how we won duels. We dominated the game. I don't know what the f- what the fuck he was watching. You were next to the fucking pitch, man. You couldn't see that we played exactly how Canada wanted us to play. It was a joke. But yeah, Greg being the coach of this team is just another symptom of the issue I've always had with the United States Soccer Federation, which is why I don't really talk about them much. I always want them to do well. The United States is the land I was born and raised in, but I just can't really get behind the national team. Like I used to. Because I know every victory is a victory for the people in charge. But yeah, Greg pretty much got this job because of his bro. And by the way he coaches this team, 
You can tell he only got the job for that reason. And don't get me started with him taking pictures with fans, taking selfies with fans against Honduras. This was mentioned before, actually, by uh, by Hercules Gomez, next player on on Fox Sports. Before I was watching, he said about the about this incident. He said, "I'm a Honduran on the pitch. I'm two footing a player, and I'm fully in agreement with that. I actually like to add to that. I'm doing one or two things. I'm making sure I'm snapping someone's shit in half, and then telling Greg, smile at the camera now, or I could just." Deliver a swift right hook to Greg. Just ask him, you like taking pictures? How about you take one with a black eye, motherfucker? I would have loved to see Greg try this in South America. Trust me, they would have probably done a lot worse. I'd probably be nice about it compared to them. As usual, the media not holding the people responsible accountable. I was hearing mainstream sports media figures like uh, Stephen A. Smith taking more shots at Greg than I ever heard the American soccer media take shots at him. They pamper him to no end. This media is softer than fucking tissue paper. Just because he's the brother's ball, just because he was an MLS coach, they protect him like, like he was their own son. Holy fuck. And yes, I know there is no quick fix to the problem with American soccer. It's complex. It involves corruption, conflict of interest, institutional racism, xenophobia, disenfranchisement, and in this case, nepotism. The entire issue probably deserves its own episode. It's that complex. But in this situation, the least the media can fucking do is demand more. Hold people accountable. Demand explanation. Demand better. Because that's potentially be way better than whatever the fuck it is we're seeing here. Enough with the lame excuses. Enough with the lame defenses. I was hearing the talk of how Canada's such a, a great team. They're undefeated. And yeah, credit to them. They're doing great. But after all, it's CONCACAF. Yeah, I guarantee you, no serious team at the World Cup is scared of Canada. The Argentinas, the Brazils, Francis. They see that Canada is second or third best team in their group. They'll celebrate. Yeah, they'll do it outside the public eye. They're, they're respectful. And you definitely won't see the coach taking any picks with fans. Even if they're up 5-0 at the half. The problem starts with us. We want to be a serious football nation. We need to start taking the game more seriously. And now on to a very busy January transfer window. Where several clubs scramble to reinforce their squads in order to meet their season objectives. Let's begin with winner number one, Juventus, who rid themselves of Dejan Kulusevski and Rodrigo Bentancur, who were both sold to Tottenham Hotspur. These are two average players who have no place in a Juve squad that's trying to get back to the elite. Then they brought in a quality center forward in Dusan Vlahovic, a highly rated striker prospect from Fiorentina. I believe this is a good move for both parties especially for Dushan himself. He makes a step up to a club with high expectations, better teammates in service, Champions League football, and also stays in the league that he knows for sure that he's good enough for. No worries about having to adapt to the, the pace and physicality of the Premier League. No worrying if he's technical enough to play in Spain. He was reported to be an alternative for Barcelona in case they failed to land Erling Haaland in the summer. In addition, they signed a quality midfielder in Dani Zakaria who had interest from many clubs, including Manchester United and Barcelona, as a free agent signing in the summer. I think with these signings that Juventus should meet their objective of qualifying for the Champions League, as they needed to improve in midfield and in attack, also needed to offset the loss of Federico Chiesa to long-term injury. And on to winner number two, Newcastle United. Newcastle made a total of four major signings this winter. They signed Kieran Trippier from Atletico Madrid, Signed Chris Wood from Burnley, Dan Byrne from Brighton, and most notably, they signed Bruno Guimaraes, 
24-year-old midfielder, Brazilian midfielder from Olympique Lyon. I think these signings should be more than enough for Newcastle to avoid the drop. What impressed me most about this business is that they were a little more proactive, like long-term thinking with their spending. You know, after the after the takeover of Newcastle by the new owners, it was rumored that they were going to go for big names like Mbappe or Holland. But for now, it seems that they're focusing themselves on avoiding relegation and laying the foundations for an elite competitive team further down the line, similar to uh, Manchester City when they were first, first taken over by Abu Dhabi in 2010. You could say that they hope that Bruno is more like their Yaya Torre. But yeah, great business done by Newcastle this winter, and it'll be interesting to see how this project unfolds further down the line. And winner number three, no bias, promise, Barcelona. Barcelona had to deal with a tight financial and wage situation, and they did so brilliantly while having to meet the objective of qualifying for next season's Champions League and to recover the playing model made famous by Johan Cruyff, that playing model responsible for all the major success this club has achieved throughout its history, abandoned by the club years ago under the previous board, pretty much responsible for the mess they're in now. They signed Ferran Torres from Manchester City, Adama Traore from Wolverhampton. They signed Dani Alves on a free transfer. And on deadline day, they signed Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Arsenal on a free transfer. They made all their signings on substantially lower wages. That I found the most impressive part, you know. For example, Ferran Torres, he was coming from, um, from Manchester City. He accepted to play Europa League with Barcelona instead of playing Champions League with Manchester City. And there were other rumored targets like Avara Morata and Nicolas Tagliafico. They wanted to come to Barcelona to play Europa League rather than play Champions League with their clubs, with Juve and Ajax, respectively. Speaks volumes to how big Barcelona is as a club and how it's still a dream destination for many aspiring professional footballers. I think all the players that were signed, they were lower signings who can be useful in a certain context with defined roles. I don't know if they're good enough for an elite Barca, but they can certainly be helpful now. It'll be interesting to see what Xavi does with them. Hats off to Matteo Alemani, CEO of Barcelona, for making a lot out of barely anything to work with. Managed to reinforce the team in this tricky situation with the salary caps, demonstrating expertise that made him so highly regarded in Spain in these last few years, serving on the boards of Valencia and Mallorca. So yeah, brilliantly done by him. And now on to the losers of the window, with number one being Arsenal. Arsenal had a number of players leave over the winter, mostly on loan. And most notably, they let Pierre-Americk Aubameyang leave to Barcelona on deadline day for free. It was clear that Mikel Arteta had enough of working with him. Throughout the winter, they were linked to players such as Bruno Guimaraes, who I mentioned had signed for Newcastle, Arthur Melo from Juventus, Douglas Luiz from Aston Villa, Dusan Vlahovic from Fiorentina, who I mentioned before signed for Juventus, Alexander Isak from Real Sociedad. Did they manage to land any of those targets? No, they did not. Consequence of Stan Kroenke owning your football club, folks. A club trying to get back into the Champions League for the first time in years, yet simultaneously doing everything they can to fail at it. Once again, loser number two, Manchester United. Manchester United made no new signings over the winter. They refused to let Jesse Lingard leave, despite wanting away and despite being out of favor. And yet they let Anthony Martial and Donny van de Beek leave on loan to Sevilla and to Everton, respectively. Despite the signing of Cristiano Ronaldo and Rafael Varane over the summer, it was clear that Manchester United needed to make improvements in key areas, especially in the midfield. Whenever I discuss Manchester United with my friends, I constantly reiterate 
that midfield is easily the weakest link of this team. The likes of Fred, McTominay, and Matic are simply not Champions League quality. I think this lack of improvement will end up costing them top four. Not only will it cost them a spot in next season's Champions League, I think it will end up costing them Cristiano Ronaldo. And loser number three, Usman Dembele. Usman and his agent were in a row with Barcelona over a new contract. He refused to renew, and yet he refused to leave in the winter when Barcelona made it clear they wanted him gone. According to President Joan Laporta, Usman Dembele rejected an offer from the Premier League on deadline day. This behavior is nothing short of disgraceful, and the board is certainly in agreement. They were set to send him to the stands, reportedly, but the last word, the final say was given to Xavi Hernandez. If reports are to be believed, he will call him up for Sunday's game against Atletico Madrid. And personally, I'm very disappointed in him because, quite simply, I don't see the benefit in Usman Dembele playing another minute for FC Barcelona. I think he's going to affect the squad morale with the whistles raining down on him from the Camp Nou crowd next time he plays. And how are the likes of Ferran and Adama and even Aubameyang, how, how are they going to feel? How are they supposed to feel? Seeing the, the likes of Usman Dembele take their minutes, knowing he's going to leave, knowing he made a fool of the club over the winter, and knowing he's going to leave the summer. And it's just a bad message from the board to the players, to future players, that the threats they made were empty, that they can't be respected. I think with his actions, Usman made a mockery of this club. And I simply do not see how letting him play another minute for this club is going to help us get closer to our objectives. I haven't even started talking about his level. I always mention this when I talk to my friends about Barcelona, about Usman Dembele, that I see him as the same player he was when he first got here. He still does those same fake shots from side to side. He still likes to kick the ball forward and uh, try to sprint past the defender and failing at it. He's positionally a mess. He doesn't know when to come closer to play with the ball. He doesn't know when to distance himself from the play with the ball. He doesn't know how to make runs in behind the defense. After so many years of playing with some of the best players, he hasn't learned a thing. So I don't see why Xavi is so adamant on letting him play. He's not messy for crying out loud. I really hope I'm wrong with this. Trust me, more than anything, more than anyone, I want to be wrong about this. But I see this as a disaster waiting to happen. I see this as Xavi showing his lack of experience as a coach. Which leads me to the last topic of my episode, a brief preview of the big clash this Sunday between Barcelona and Atletico Madrid at the Camp Nou. Barcelona has not won in any of the last five attempts against Atletico Madrid. Another dismal record against the big team, characteristic of a team mentally destroyed by all the humiliations of the past years, especially Anfield. Night, I believe, was the killer blow to Barcelona as a competitive team. I've always said that there is a Barcelona pre-Anfield and post-Anfield. Since that night, they've always crumbled at the first sight of adversity. On the other hand, Atletico Madrid has not won at the Camp Nou since 2006. They've been very underwhelming this season. They are out of the Copa del Rey. They barely qualified for the Champions League knockout stage. They had to do so on the very last day. They've looked awful against every semi-formidable team this season. They've been very poor defensively, and John O'Block is having the worst season of his career. My expectations for Barcelona in this match are a little higher than the ones I had against Real Madrid in the Super Cup because of the, the, the reasons I mentioned. It's a team that's still 
mentally failed and still trying to get its competitive edge back. However, this time, we are at home against an underperforming Atletico. So I want us to build on that Super Cup performance. In terms of injuries, there are no issues for Atletico. Barcelona has many. Recently, they lost Ansu Fati to injury, and the only center backs available in the squad are Ronald Araujo and Gerard Piquet. And I'm, and I'm unsure if uh, the new signings will play. However, if there is precedent, and uh, that is that uh, Xavi started Ferran Torres in the first game he was available, which was the aforementioned Super Cup match against Real Madrid. So anything's possible. It was reported that he practiced with a front three of Ferran Torres, Usman Dembele, and Adama Traore. So this match is very much a fight for top four, such as the state of these clubs this season. However, a victory for Barcelona would be wonderful to boost the team's confidence and morale. And I guess the same would apply to Atletico Madrid. Oh, and don't forget Milan versus Inter, the Derby de la Madonina. I grew up watching Milan, to me the biggest club in Italy. I grew up with the legendary 2000s team, featuring Andrea Shevchenko, Andrea Pirlo, Paolo Maldini, Sandro Nesta, Seidorf Gattuso, Pippo Inzaghi. They were coached by Carlo Ancelotti, who was sadly now the Madrid boss. On the other hand, I have many bad memories of Inter. Namely, back in 2010, when they prevented us from becoming the first team to three-peat the Champions League. That goddamn volcano. Goddamn Ibra, who came from Inter to sabo us. I'm sure of it. Of course, Madrid had to become the first team to do it. I don't know. I'm pretty sure these fucks signed a pact with the devil or some shit. Oh, well. But yeah, that's another fixture to look forward to this weekend. So yeah, that's all the time I have for you today. Till next time. In the meantime, brace yourselves. Should be an exciting month of football. Especially with the return of the Champions League. Yeah, I know Barcelona ain't in it, but a friend once told me we're going to win Europa League and destroy the winner of the Champions League in the Super Cup. So it'll be like we won the Champions League after all. I prefer to think of it this way now. So take it easy. Be safe. Bye-bye for now.